Hi, everyone. Welcome again to another Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moeed Amin. Uh, the goal of this show and all of our episodes is to help everyone become excellent communicators, persuaders, and influencers. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how knowledgeable you are, how skilled you are. If you cannot communicate your value and if you cannot bring the right people along with you on that journey, you won't have the impact that you are hoping for. To know and not to be known is not to know. So whether you are a salesperson, uh, a business leader, a scientist, an artist, whatever background and professional skill you have, your ability to communicate and bring people along with you on the journey, especially if your idea is big enough, is going to be critical to your success. You know, my guest today is someone who I am delighted to have on our show. Uh, and I was actually a guest on her, her own podcast. And I thought, you know, she had, you know, I've got to bring her in. She's got some amazing things that she can share with our, with our viewers and listeners. So she is the lead coach at Predictable Revenue and uh, helps, you know, revenue leaders build and scale their outbound function. So she comes from an SDR background <clears throat> where, you know, she did the role for a few years and then transitioned to managing an SDR team. So she has built the outreach scars and uh, more importantly, you know, this is not something that she did many years ago, <clears throat> but something that she's been doing very recently. Um, and she also managed an SDR team um, or a couple of SDR teams actually during the changes brought on by COVID. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, what she can share about that experience. And, and I hope you're ready to take some notes because I, th I think there's going to be some amazing insights being shared. So please help me welcome Sarah Hicks. Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Moeed. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. And, and <clears throat> you know, it's great to speak with someone that has a lot of that outbound experience because it's an area that people still struggle with. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever met maybe one or two in my lifetime. Maybe you've met more. I don't think I've ever met someone that truly enjoys and says, oh boy, I really am excited to do a hundred cold calls today, right? Um, you know, people have learned to take the best out of it and become good at it. But I don't know if someone, I haven't met anyone that says they really enjoy it, but it's something that's very necessary. So I'm really looking forward to, to what you have to share. So why don't we start with a um, question that I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on, which is what have you learned about yourself in your time as an outbound specialist? I think what I learned, first of all, in that SDR role um, was that I essentially I'm kind of persistent. I mean, persistence is is absolutely key with outbound, but it's it's like persistence and I think just having a hard skin, it's, it's those two things. It's kind of resilient and, and, and persistent because you've got to try so many different things. There's no one thing that's going to work for you company by company, month by month. There are so many changes that happen in the outbound world, in the world of your customer, in your own company that you've constantly got to be making those changes and kind of staying on top of them. So there's a piece of agility there, but agility without the persistence to just keep being agile um, is, is kind of not enough. So I would say the biggest thing is that just persistence and kind of resilience. And the same thing that transferred over to the management as well, helping each uh, of the SDRs prospecting for different companies because at Predictable Revenue, we, we do that on behalf of our clients. So that's how I kind of was managing multiple teams at once, but kind of bringing that to them. And then even same thing uh, on the coaching side, it's about testing out that stuff on behalf of the client, bringing them those new ideas day after day. Um, and yeah, just, just sticking with it. That's, 
that's the toughest part. That's interesting. So persistence, resilience, and a susan of agility there. Were they things that you you had always had? Or would you say that either you discovered them? I mean, certainly you probably built upon them during the time as an outbound specialist, but did you always have that kind of resistance and persistence and agility? Or, or would you say, you know, it's actually something you discovered about yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it probably manifested in different ways doing different things in my life. And I maybe wouldn't have been able to put my finger on it and say, okay, yeah, I've got a good healthy dose of persistence and resilience. But I would say it's definitely in my nature. I mean, I think I've put myself in many situations in my life that require that skill set. And those are completely different situations, whether it's, you know, just my undergrad and kind of trying to do my best there or um, going into the performance world and, and bringing that's absolutely a necessary skill set there as well. So I, I probably wasn't able to identify it as easily as when I was successful in the SDR role. And I was like, okay, this took a whole lot of that to get here. Um, because just like you say, Moeet, I did not like it. I didn't like being an SDR. I didn't like the job. So much of the persistence was actually not so much only about booking the meetings and hitting my quota, but about finding a repeatable way to do that, that I didn't hate. <laughs> was there kind of a custom way that I could reach out and meet my goals without it being sort of soul destroying <laughs> for me? That's so interesting. And you talked about putting yourself in those situations that kind of forced you to develop that. Was that, just to make sure, was that deliberate or did you often find yourself in certain situations? I'm sure it was um, subconscious. I think even just my upbringing, my parents are very much like that. They're very, yeah, very persistent, hardworking people. And so I think probably following their lead, I subconsciously chose those paths, but I wouldn't say that I was ever actively seeking out those types of things. It just seemed that each, I seem to like a challenge is the best way to put it. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, one of the things I, I've taught a lot of people in my courses and in my programs, you know, you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable if you want to grow. That requires a lot of things, but one of the things that really requires is courage right? Courage to kind of step out of your comfort zone, courage to, you know, get into a terrain where it's probably unknown, or there's an element of it that's unknown. And unknown can always be scary for people. And what I've always said to people is, you can build courage the same way you build muscle, right? You just got to figure out what am I going to do today? That's going to take me a little bit outside my comfort zone. It doesn't have to be anything scary, just a little bit outside my comfort mm -hmm. zone. So things like taking a cold shower, or one, one of my favorites, which is, you know, when you go to a store to buy something, whether it's clothes, food, whatever it is, get into the practice of asking for a discount, uh, you know, in, in a particular store where normally you would just never ask for a discount. And I think consumers never do. And even we as sales professionals don't as a consumer. So I started doing that. And just the other day, I got a 20% discount on something which I wasn't expecting. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because <clears throat> I see high performers, well, some high performers use that technique. So that was interesting. There was one other thing that I learned about you that was really interesting. And I'd love to dig into this. I, I understand that you have a background in drama and in the arts. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I myself personally paid an ex-actor to, and it was part of her program, to teach me aspects about acting because I believe that, you know, this is going to actually help my sales approach. And I was right about that. But I, I heard you mention this in, a pod, in another podcast that you were invited on. Could you share with our listeners and viewers your perspective on how acting skills, what you've learned in acting and drama have have how they've helped you become a better seller. Yeah, absolutely. So the one one thing about acting is that especially when you're 
on the audition circuit, for instance, uh, you're faced with rejection a lot of times and your audition is almost like your cold call or your, you know, first meeting discovery meeting where somebody then either gives you ghosts, you doesn't respond or tells you, you know what, you're not the right fit here. Um, and it helps you develop that persistence and that thick skin to carry on because it can be very daunting experience. First of all, to know that you're putting yourself in that vulnerable position. Um, and then second of all, it can be a very discouraging experience when you do get met with that negative feedback or just no, no feedback at all. And then you don't even know where you stand. So um, that was one way that I could see a very direct mapping of, of the acting onto the sales role. But then um, there were a lot of other things that were a little bit less obvious. Um, one of your big focuses moved around great communication. You have to learn to be a great communicator as an actor because you have to convey what you're trying to convey both through your words and actually saying the words that are on the script in front of you. But there's always the tone, uh, the way that you say those words that has to come across in the right way. And then the kind of flip side of that, you have to be able to take direction, which makes you a really good listener. In acting, you will have different directors that are telling you uh, different types of direction in different types of ways. Some are going to be very explicit and easy to understand. Some are going to be much more cryptic and you're going to have to learn to interpret those uh, uh, directions without causing any friction um, and implement them quickly. So that's something that is a, a huge, a huge skill for a salesperson to be able to sit there in a conversation and very quickly internalize and react to what has been said to them in the appropriate way. And it's going to be said to you in, in all different ways, depending on who that prospect is, um, depending on what the problems are. That has been a huge, a huge help for me. And then just kind of more overall uh, skill sets or interests or whatever, just I think the creativity always ties in really well with coming up with new uh, strategies and tactics for outbound. If you're kind of stuck doing the same old thing, it's not going to work. And so having your kind of eyes peeled for the next thing that you're going to try and, and always having a bit of a, a creative drive underneath everything is really helpful. That is so interesting. So there were four things there. So number one was, uh, and actually I didn't actually expect this one. Um, you're getting comfortable with your relationship with rejection, right? So kind of having, you know, you're experiencing that rejection quite a lot. Uh, and I think it's it's what I got across from the, what you explained was just your relationship with rejection, what it means to you. So that was interesting. The obvious one that you mentioned there was communication, your know, tone of voice, how you express yourself to someone, which I thought was interesting. The other one that you mentioned was taking direction. I wasn't expecting that one, but taking a direction. And it's more, it's it's less about, because I thought you were going to talk about almost like taking orders and, and guidance, but actually you mean listening out for what someone is saying and changing or course correcting your direction of what you were about to do based upon what that person is saying so deep listening but also quickly assimilating that information and then the final one was creativity which i thought was a really good one that's 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 really really interesting how did you know if we jump into outbound then because covid probably took a lot of direct <laughs> created a lot of direction and creativity for people yeah. this is a burning question that a lot of viewers and generally people ask in in, in sales Maybe start with, you know, what, what changed for you in terms of outbound since COVID, but I'm more interested in, you know, how did you, or how did you and your colleagues have to change in terms of your outbound approach? And what have you found to be really successful after, you know, in, in the post COVID world? Yeah. So as far as what changed kind of the biggest changes I saw uh, with outbound kind of during post, whatever we want to call it with COVID 
kind of post-disruption was that the channels available to us in many cases were reduced. So of course, what channels were available to you to begin with depended on your target market, your buyer personas, all of that kind of stuff. But say the people that um, were attending events or the the prospectors that received those lists from their colleagues that attended events and gathered leads and had conversations, all those things. So that just effectually, uh, effectively disappeared overnight. Um, then phone calls, phone, phone, I guess who you were phoning or how were you were phoning them? That was a big change too, because nobody was in the office anymore. So if you once upon a time had a HQ phone and you knew you were going to navigate the phone tree or ask that gatekeeper for that connection, that wasn't available to you anymore. And if you even had the direct phone or the extension, if it was a work phone, again, it probably wasn't available to you anymore. And so there was this, this shift to, okay, can I phone the cell phone? Do I have the cell phone number? Where should I phone? Do I just rely on email? So I think those were the biggest changes that we saw across the board was just the effectiveness and access to different channels. And then as far as how you address that and kind of how prospecting has changed as a result, the answer is not as much as you think. Um, It was a big adjustment period for sure as people kind of found their footing again once they realized that those channels were, were different. But once we understood that you actually can phone the cell phone or you can use the lists from virtual events or look for other kind of warm trigger type um, uh, signals online, you can do much of the same thing. So there's been a lot of debate over the past, honestly, probably decade, I'd say, about the the kind of slow reduction in the power of the phone as as a primary tool for booking meetings. And I've got to be honest with you, when I was in that outbound role, I totally agreed. And I probably totally agreed because I didn't like to make cold calls myself. And so I was like, yep, no, doesn't work as a channel, losing its power, losing momentum. Let me find other ways to do it. And I did find other ways to do it. So that's okay. I mean, I always encourage SDRs out there if you hit your go- your goal, if you hit your quota and you find some creative way to get there, go for it. Um, don't let kind of looking for a new path impact your, your ability to hit your goal. But if you keep hitting that goal, I can almost guarantee that your manager, your leaders are going to say, go for it. I'm happy. You're hitting your quota. You're getting us those meetings. However you want to do that is great. So I did that as, as a salesperson and And it worked for me, but I see time and time again, and this is across different industries, different clients, different sizes of market that they're going after, different sizes of company. The phone is still the quickest and most easy way to have a conversation with a prospect. You can write fantastic emails and you send them out and you might get a high open rate, high response rate, but that response might come a couple of days down the road. It might come after the follow-up. You might have a bit of back and forth before you book the meeting, do the qualifying, generate the opportunity. So even kind of your great email that gets great responses, there's still delay where you've got to then have the next bit of communication, book the meeting, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if you catch somebody on the phone and you have a great conversation, you can ask your qualifying questions right there and that's your handoff. So that's what I, what I've realized that both hasn't kind of lost the power as we thought it has, and certainly hasn't with COVID. Um, I see tons of, uh, of our, the clients that we're working with, the SDRs at those clients, even phoning cell phones to great success in large, calling into large companies, calling into smaller size companies. Um, and those people now who have been working from home for up to two years and using the cell phone as their work phone, they're not upset. 
to, to be receiving a cold call on that cell phone because it is their work phone now. So you don't have to have that kind of feeling of, Ooh, is, is it a little bit invasive that I'm phoning the cell phone? It might've been prior to COVID, but now it's not. And that's, that is kind of shining as the most effective channel uh, post COVID. That's so interesting. So it's still the most effective channel, one of the most effective channels. Are you seeing that there is a difference between regions or countries when it comes to effectiveness of, uh, you know, cold calling? Because because you you work, I mean, you're based in the US, but you do have clients in the UK and other parts of the world. So do you see a difference in how they how they kind of receive phone calls or how they like receiving phone calls? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's always worth doing that research into your, your own segments of the market and understanding what channels do work best there. It, it's never going to be kind of universal across everything. Um, but I do still see that as a really effective channel, regardless of geography. Um, you're of course going to be up against different regulations as far as who you can phone and the reasons that you can phone them. So I would never say go against those, do your due diligence there. We've got things like GDPR and, um, and the like that will prevent us from, from doing some, some styles of cold outreach. Um, but generally speaking, there are always clauses in these regulations, um, that say something along the lines of if it's a fair and good reason that you're reaching out specifically to this person, even if it's with a business proposition, that is okay. What we're trying to prevent with those regulations is the mass spray and pray automated, really irrelevant outreach. So if you're doing your research on that company, they are a kind of perfect fit. You've figured out the kind of business case and how you think you could solve their problems. If you phone and, and open with that, um, you are within the realms, the bounds of these types of regulations. So yeah, it's still super effective. Um, the way people respond to cold calls definitely will differ kind of culturally. In some ways, it's actually, it, it, we've actually seen it easier to have those conversations in places like the UK, um, Ireland, kind of Western Europe, because they are not so heavily prospected over the phone at this point. That might change as time goes on. Like I mentioned, nothing stays the same with Outbound, but um, I think the US market is now pretty used to getting prospected over the phone. So certain execs who get a ton of cold calls are gonna be quick quick to respond and say like, no, nope, no thanks or hang up or whatever. So you're, you're maybe having a bit of a tougher go um, connecting with those people or having a longer conversation uh, in the United States. But we see, yeah, kind of a, an easier, slightly easier time having those conversations on the phone in other regions at, at this time. Right. And, and you talked about research a few times there. So I have a question about that. But before that question, you talked about mobile phones, people just calling people's mobile phones um, in the past. And this was years ago. You, you know, we would probably call HQ or, or speak to their personal assistant, whoever it might be, and we'll find a way to get their mobile number. Uh, since then, there have obviously been, you know, companies that produce lists, uh, provide email addresses, provide mobile phone numbers. I often question the, the, the accuracy of those. What's been your experience? You know, are those lists and those companies actually reliable now? Or are there other means that you found to be most effective to get someone's mobile phone? So I have yet to find one data provider, one single data provider that is going to be perfect uh, or even great in every segment of the market. Um, with most of our clients who are out there kind of building their tech stack and trying to find the data sources that are going to work for them, we, we usually tell them it's, and it's going to end up being a patchwork. There's no one provider that's going to get you that. So um, what we always recommend is looking at uh, how each of these data providers source their data. 
so that you can understand where they overlap, where they might be getting different sets of data. And you, you're likely to have to have some combination of a few different providers to get good quality data. Of course, the ideal scenario is where this information is just available on the web online, where you can find that somewhere just publicly available. But in a lot of cases, especially with kind of larger enterprise companies, and then those higher up uh, execs, they're, they're not going to have their cell phone available to you um, on the website on their LinkedIn, anything like that. So you're likely to need to, to purchase that in some way. Um, the best kind of path for, for sourcing data that we've found at Predictable Revenue, both when we source the data for our clients and when I'm helping our clients build out their own internal data stacks, um, is starting with LinkedIn Sales Navigator. We know that that's the kind of most up-to-date data source in the world in that people update it themselves. So you'll always get the right title. People will spell their name the way they want it spelled and call themselves what they want to be called, all those things. So that's nice. It's a good, really good starting point. And then looking at tools that'll help you enrich that with the contact data. So Lead IQ is actually a fantastic one for that. It's one that um, I used as an SDR myself. It's one that I, I just recently had a demo to brush up on, on if it's still working and how they've improved. And honestly, I still think it's great because they, they work with they sit kind of on your, as a Chrome extension, look at your navigator and then pull in the contact information for those people. And they find the contact information by looking all over the web. So all of that data is then compliant. It hasn't been kind of stolen. It's some, it was put somewhere publicly available. They're just doing a great job at aggregating it for you. And they've got some handy stuff for, if you are worried about regulatory issues, you can just toggle a couple of things and not pull in data for, for instance, a country that is impacted by GDPR, if you just don't want to worry about stepping on toes there. Um, and then I would go to another data provider. If you can't find validated phone email from them, you go on to the next uh, and you go for somebody that sources their data a different way. So like I mentioned, LeadIQ grabs it by looking at the entire internet, kind of crawling the internet, somewhere like Zoom Info, they get their data by looking at email signatures. So that's an, another source. So I might look at something like that to kind of fill that gap, or there are a ton of other data providers. But I always would say, how is that data being sourced? And how can I make sure there's as little overlap as possible, but as as we're covering as much of the market as possible with, with the data providers? Let's talk about that research point, because buyers are continuing to be, I think, the threshold to impress a buyer, particularly on the first outbound reach, you know, that's getting higher and higher and higher. You talked about research, you know, doing your research about someone before you're contacting rather than just kind of mass spam. And there's, there's, there's this debate that's ongoing, which is the balance between personalization versus scale. Um, what are your, what are your views on that? What, what do you teach some of your clients? Yeah. So I think if you segment your ICP, your personas down narrow enough, you can write some really relevant messaging that doesn't necessarily have to be customized or personalized to the individual. And that's kind of the, the goal, I think, with most of our clients is that we're, we're trying to be able to automate to a certain degree. Maybe what we do is we throw in one kind of personalized line at the top of that first email um, for our really high value or priority um, ideal customer. If we're thinking about outbound, we know that there tends to be a return on investment with, with the opportunity cost of outbound. If the, if the average deal size is over a certain threshold, it's around 15,000 now. And the kind of the, the need for personalization and customization increases as that average deal size increases because you're likely targeting larger companies, the deals are more complex, it's a larger buying committee. So you kind of have to lean more on the manual stuff, the higher you go. And then the, the lower you go down that average deal size spectrum, you are likely to want to rely more on automation because you're probably going to need a higher volume going out and a higher volume coming in. Um, 
to meet your goals. And I always recommend, you know, working out those finances and seeing what kind of opportunities and revenue and all that stuff you need to break even, but that's what we see. So if you're sitting around that kind of 15, 20,000 mark, you can do quite well with relevance, relevance without necessarily customization or personalization, kind of we use those words interchangeably. But so if you're thinking about your total ICP, those are all the companies that you can potentially work with. You can't reach out to all of the companies you can potentially work with with the same language and hope that that's gonna resonate. And the same goes to the personas. Whether you might just have one single buyer persona that you reach out to, you solve one problem for one type of person at a certain type of company, even see if you can split that down further. For instance, I always, um, help customers or our clients kind of come up with umbrella personas. So say they reach out to kind of an end user, say it's a, an accounting software. They reach out to the accountants, the end users, and they also reach out to the, you know, the CFO, the, the leaders in finance. Even those, even though they're all the finance department, you can't reach out to those people with the same message. You'd want to split that further, maybe into a couple of umbrella personas that is your accountants and your finance leader. And maybe your CFO and your controller are actually together in the finance leader and then accountants and junior accountants and, and some other um, titles might be in the umbrella of, of the accountant. But what you're doing is grouping those into the smallest possible like-minded group so that you can reach out to them using the same message and it feel as close to one-to-one as possible to that group. So then when I'm speaking out, speaking to that higher up title, that leader, I'm speaking to more strategic issues. I'm going out and doing my research to understand, looking at job descriptions. What does the day-to-day of that person look like? What kinds of skills are they required to have to do their job effectively? What kind of experience do these people tend to have? What are their top challenges? You can even use Google. Google's a great, a great tool just for going top issues in finance 2022. You'll get some great um, reports and Harvard Business Review. Those types of things are going to put out um, good content there. So then you can speak to them and, and kind of align with them in what they're doing, what their goals are and how you might be able to help them get there quicker. And that's going to be a different conversation that you, than you, the one that you have with those accountants, for instance. So that's why I say research is so important. You want to break that, that overall total audience. You could be reaching out to down into the smallest possible groups with, with like uh, challenges or like priorities, and then do your research into that group of people to understand where they spend their time online, what their goals are, what their day-to-day is, um, what kind of information they consume and from where, um, and uh, most importantly, what their priorities are so that you can align with those and say, here's how I help you get there. Yeah, the, the, I'm so glad I asked you that question. There was a lot of value that you shared then. There's a lot of similarities between what you shared and what I what I share as well. Because what you call umbrellas, I call categories. And I think um, <clears throat> you know, personalization at scale is either impossible or, or incredibly difficult to do, yeah. but it's about relevancy at scale. So when I talk about categories and you said umbrellas I find there are two main categories where you can do some good relevancy at scale one is industry and the other one is as you said and as you gave the example job role right so an account direct uh, sorry um, you know a CFO versus a financial controller etc etc so that, that was really interesting and I'm still surprised by how very few and I mean that compared to the whole very few SDRs do something as simple as you described, which is, you know, top CFO challenges for 2022. Um, or uh, I think what I spoke to you about in, 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 in your podcast, which was, you know, most people, even salespeople, experienced ones, 
when you ask them, what are the MBOs? What are the, what, how, are, how are you the people you sell to? How are they measured in terms of their career progression and bonus and things like that? Very few can actually answer that very well. Are you seeing the same with SDRs around, you know, top trends of CTOs for 2022, for example? Do you find that very few, you know, very few actually know that and do yeah. something as simple as that? Or, or am I missing something here? Am I seeing something different? No, I no, I totally agree. I'm, I am seeing I'm seeing that across the board. Um, and I think it's because, and this is true, I think of most kind of onboarding programs that that most companies have when they're bringing their SDRs on board is so much mm. of the focus of what we teach our SDRs is about our product, how it helps people, the ins and outs, the details, the features, whatever that might be. And we we spend less time saying, okay, before you prospect, you've got to understand the market, you've got to understand the people that you're reaching out to. We we kind of flip that on its head when it's a little bit counterproductive for the SDR, because while of course they need to understand at a high level, how your tool, your product service, whatever helps people get to their goals. They're not the one that has to dive into the detail on how exactly it does that. What they do have to do on a daily basis is have conversations and attempt to break into these to these personas in a, in a relevant and kind of scalable way, like you mentioned. So it, it's so much more important to focus on that. But I think we can't really blame SDRs is what I'm saying. Cause a lot of those people that come into the SDR role are coming in very junior. And I think some of the best SDRs I've ever seen come with no sales experience. So it's wonderful to take these kind of agile, flexible, young people that are um, quick to learn and, and kind of set them out to do that job. But it's it's more of a, a leadership uh, job to enforce. We've got to learn about this as a top priority. Here are some places you can go look for that information. Here are some here are some questions or prompts that you should go answer, and then continue to answer on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. Keep revisiting it. And what I've seen then when when those SDRs are out there, kind of with their ear on the ground doing this research, is that they bring stuff up to senior leadership that senior leadership isn't even looking for anymore. Because senior leadership is, is stuck doing their strategic stuff. They're no longer, now that they've got a front line of, of salespeople, they're no longer out there having those conversations, having the quick response from the market. But the SDRs are, and they can often bring stuff up and say like, hey, we're getting this objection a ton. It sounds like this is a bad time of year for this title, for whatever reason, I think we should approach this a different way. And that's maybe information that, you know, even the, the revenue leader or the sales leader wouldn't have known without them. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a kind of a leadership um, shift that's got to be made to focus more on the research and on the, the customer, on the prospect and less on the, on the product or service. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. I, I, I love what you said there. You know, we can't blame the SDRs because they, they're very junior and, and a lot of them, this is their first official kind of career role, right? Outside of education. And, and it's really up to the leaders. But what you also said about the value that SDRs can bring, because they're at the sharp end of the markets, right? Where the, where the company meets their customers and their community. And uh, they could be a very powerful eyes and ears for those leaders. So I loved what you said there. And actually that kind of nicely kind of segues me into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is if a company is trying to create an outbound function or team, or, or, they're try, or they're reviewing how that outbound functional team is working right now, what would you say is the anatomy of a, of a great outbound function? What are the, some of the core things that people should, really, leaders should really think about? Yeah, this is something that we've actually revisited as predictable revenue very recently. So it's kind of top of mind and, and a lot of heads have been put together to think about this. And, and I will actually um, suggest a resource that we can 
share with people as well. It's our new sales development methodology because it kind of breaks this down in, in good detail for you if you want to look it over again. But um, what we have landed on as predictable revenue. And it's something that differs from if you guys had heard of or read the original predictable revenue book, which was put out about, about a decade ago. So a lot of stuff has aged in that book, but equally as important as the kind of tactics or the playbook for, for going to market and actually doing that outreach is some of the understanding and pre-work that's got to sit underneath that. So one of those things is understanding how you are positioned in the market. Are you in a crowded space where there's a thousand companies that do what you do? Are you priced higher or lower than them? How do you differentiate from them? Kind of understanding where you sit in that market is going to be huge because if you are the most expensive and with the worst reviews in your space, you're going to have a really tough time uh, taking that, that to market through outbound. And you might have to think about some things. So positioning being the first one. Um, the other one, the second one is uh, pace and pace kind of comes down to, like I mentioned, when we're talking about that spectrum of, of deal size and kind of thinking about how finances factor into outbound, the smaller the deal size, the more deals you're going to need to get ROI from outbound. That's going to dictate the way that you approach the market. Um, or even if you've got funding, that's going to change the way you approach the market. So kind of how your finances factor in to how quickly you can take things to, to the market and how you can scale that function. There's one other thing I'll say, look at the sales development methodology for that. Um, but, but it's all about kind of understanding the foundations before you make that, that move. And then, then there's the playbook, then that, then there's how you actually go to market. And some of the most important things to consider when you're actually building that team or when you're scaling that team to make sure that you have, um, the first is kind of your, your team, who you have that's actually going to go out and do that job. It doesn't have to be the dedicated SDR function right away. If that doesn't make sense with your pace and your finances, maybe it is a full cycle sales rep, but you've got to make sure that that first sales rep you have, whatever their role is a special type of sales rep, especially with an early stage company, you're going to be a little bit scrappy. You're not going to have some of the processes and systems and resources set out that a large company will have. So you can't take a salesperson that, that is used to having all those things and expect them to be able to do it without them. You need one of these agile people who can kind of make it up as they go along and help you build those, build the systems as you go, or kind of build the plane as you're flying it, um, which is what we like to say. So you need somebody that has a lot of the qualities that we talked about early on this podcast, actually, to help you get there. So thinking about that team, just what are the tasks that need to be done and who, who is the type of person and what, what is the role that does that? Um, then you have your, your tool stack and there's kind of a minimum viable tool stack that we see. Um, that is you need prospecting domains. That's one thing that we still, still see a lot of, um, companies out there not knowing about, but when you're thinking about deliverability and spam issues, you want to make sure that with your cold outreach, you're not hurting your main company domain. That's going to impact the way you can talk to your customers and any other kind of communications that's not cold outbound can be hurt if you go into spam with your cold outbound. So set yourself up some alias or prospecting domains. If you haven't heard of that, do some research on that. And um, that's part of our minimal viable tool stack. And then you just need the tools that are going to help you do the job effectively. And I would love for that to be a CRM and a sales engagement tool. So something that's going to help you automate 
your stuff to a certain degree. Something's going to help you stay organized. Something's going to help you remind you of your follow-up so that you're not having to set those manual tasks out. And then the CRM, of course, and um, that's tracking that kind of longer journey. The sales engagement tool usually focuses really on up until opportunity creation. And then your CRM is great for tracking everything after that. Um, especially as you're kind of trying out new tactics and new strategies, you want to know what works and what doesn't. And it's very difficult to understand that if you can't gather any data. So helping having these tools helps you capture that data and understand what's working. And then from there, it's about understanding how you actually go and do the prospecting, actually go and do that outreach. A lot of it is going to come down to experimentation, but documenting what you've tried, documenting those results and trying the next thing and making sure you always fall back on this persona research, persona relevance or, or category relevance um, so that your messaging is as close to personal as possible. And um, those are kind of the top I would say top three most important things um, in building an effective or scaling an effective outbound team is that first you nail those three principles that sit underneath. Then you've got your uh, minimum viable tool stack, your people, the team that you need, and then you're understanding how you should actually take this thing to market, how you should actually reach out. That's hugely valuable. And is that a resource that we can uh, put the link to in yes. the show notes for people to access? Yeah, so we'll yep. do that for everyone. Uh, and I, I would encourage everyone to have a look at that because what, what Sarah shared there was really, really valuable. Um, uh, one question, so the, actually, if we go back to when we talked about cold calling, one question I I'm, I'm really want to understand is how have you seen you know, SDRs or, or, or high-performing SDRs or SDR teams employ an omni-channel omni approach to their outbound? Have, you know, can you give any guidance around the balance of that omni-channel or whether... You know, just how do they approach that omni-channel? Well, how do they make, how do they make it work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, absolutely. Omni-channel is the most effective um, way to go about it. There are going to be outliers, of course. Maybe your market doesn't, just doesn't exist on a couple of those channels. But in most cases, 99% of cases, um, leveraging multiple channels is going to be really helpful. Not only because you're kind of putting yourself in front of people on different channels, but also because the way that you speak to them on those different channels is different. So you're kind of giving yourself multiple opportunities with a slightly different message when you're leveraging each of those channels. So for instance, email, we've got our, um, the kind of tried and true methods that you might've uh, established with your email. That same message is not going to work on LinkedIn because social selling is different from the way that we sell over email. And then again, when you catch somebody on the phone, you're not just going to read out your email to them. So you're giving yourself all those different options. And you give yourself every another opportunity to have a conversation with each channel that each touch that you make at each channel that you use. So the way the best um, reps that I've seen leveraging these types of channels are kind of capitalizing on any engagement or any um, indication that somebody is active on any of these channels and trying to use it. So for instance, if you've got that sales engagement tool that lets you know when somebody has opened an email, then you pick up the phone. And so that we see as some of the most effective calls, we call them engagement calls. So even if you can set yourself in your, in your uh, sales engagement tool, a little alert or kind of a manual task that'll pop, pop up for you when somebody has opened an email, say over three times, you call that person, they're that much more likely to A, be in front of their computer because you've got or in their phone, because you've got that notification that they read their email. Um, but they're also more likely to know your name, know something about you understand what you're trying to have a conversation about. And so when you pick up that phone, it's a little bit warmer than a true cold call. So that's one way it's kind of looking at what's happening in one channel to be able to leverage the other. And then same thing um, with social selling. So if we see somebody posting something, commenting on that, liking that, uh, putting yourselves in front of them, even in a non kind of actual true outreach 
asking something of them way. And if they post something really relevant that you can really tie back to what you offer, you can bring it over to email and you can email that person and say, Hey, I saw your post on blah, blah, blah. I thought that was so interesting. Have you ever considered this? Would, would that be worth a conversation? So it's about not only leveraging each of those channels, but kind of letting them bounce off one another um, to create a holistic approach. Um, that's definitely been the most effective way that we've seen. Uh, yeah, top reps use all those channels. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I, learned, I learned quite a bit there, actually. I wish we had, gosh, I wish we had more time, actually. There's so much we could talk about. I'm wondering if we can share something practical with our yeah viewers and listeners uh, and I appreciate uh, exactly as you said and I've experienced this obviously you know your pitch or your approach on LinkedIn is going to be very different to email and of course very different to, to the phone but I'm just wondering if we could share some kind of good principles or frameworks in terms of what a good pitch would look like could you walk us through what that what that should look like and where you've seen it being been successful yeah, absolutely. Um, the first thing I'll say about a good pitch, and it's kind of funny, and it's not quite about the pitch, is that you don't pitch until you've identified pain. That's sort of this little underlying rule that you should think about with your pitch. So for instance, if you're on the phone, you're on a cold call, you can't just come in and say, we do X, Y, Z, here's the benefit, because you might be like a colleague of mine likes to say, you might be trying to sell car insurance to somebody that doesn't have, even have a car. So you've got to start with that and same thing over email. Um, but then when it comes down to the pitch, the, the kind of best structure or framework that we've found for the pitch is the, we help X person achieve Y goal by doing Z. So you, you focus first on them and their goals and then how you can help them get there. And that way you're always keeping it really kind of customer focused, focused on them. And especially because you've built on pain first, what you've done, and this is a Josh Braun uh, term, is you've highlighted or illuminated the pain and the risk of inaction. So here are all the things that suck that for you right now. Here are all the things that are not going well. We can help you achieve your goal, which is what you do want, by doing this. Now there's a world that exists without that pain and they go, okay, these pains are heavy on this side of the way scale. The risk of inaction is heavier than the effort it takes me to change and, and do this new thing. Because that's another little tip that I'll share with you guys is your top competitor in 99% of cases is not a true competitor. It's not another tool. It's the status quo. It's whatever people have already been doing because it's very difficult to make changes. So what you're trying to do is make the the side of the scale that where you're talking about pain and, and inaction and the status quo heavier and more painful than, than the challenges or the, um, the want not to move forward and make a change. And that's kind of how I would say you build that first and then you position the dream without it and how you can help people achieve their goals. I 100% agree with everything you said there. And I, and I really I really hope our viewers and listeners really heard what you said because it's, a, it's an area that I talk about so much and yet so few. And, and there are a multitude of reasons. We can't always blame the salesperson. Sometimes it's the leaders and the pressure they place on the salespeople. Buyers couldn't care less about you. They couldn't care less about your product. Even your customers don't care less about you and your product. They only care about you when they can see that you can elevate their desires and goals uh, and, and help them avoid pain. So starting with what, talking about them, right? And what you've done, and actually it's interesting because you say, you know, I've, we've helped X, Y, and Z, we've helped X do Y by doing Z. I've often advised people to use 
a name that you can use, not a company, but a person's name. Have you seen that work or, or, or has, that, has that now changed and it's become, you know, people are skeptical of that? I think leveraging social proof is always really useful. I think with social proof, it has to be relevant to the person that you're speaking to. So for instance, if I'm speaking to like a mom and shop bakery, I'm not going to tell them that I helped Coca-Cola achieve their goals because it's sure. even though they're technically in the same category, they're just not going to see themselves in that social proof. So it, you've got to pick the right social proof, but absolutely. We still, still leverage that all the time. Um, I would say with my kind of true, true pitch, I maybe don't, uh, leverage that social proof actually in the pitch. It's more, um, if I was speaking to sales leaders, it's like, we help people in your title. We help sales leaders, right. um, achieve, help their teams achieve, achieve quota or whatever that is. Um, by doing Y or by doing Z, um, but then give an example that like you're mentioning where we actually name somebody or actually name a company that they would recognize that they know is similar to them. That's not just a big flashy name, a big flashy logo that we're trying to yeah, show off, but actually somebody that they can say, okay, no, I, I understand how this would apply to me because I do see that we're quite similar to that company or that persona. Yeah. So it's relatable. And then the, the pain of same is greater than the pain of change. And then you've got to show them that the benefit of change is actually something that's so powerful. It's just going to draw them in. So I, I thought that was, I really love that and 100% agree. And I wish more people would do that because I still find salespeople fall into this trap where they're just, or it's all about them. It's like all this, like this kind of narcissism. It's just about me, just about a product. And the customer really doesn't care. They've got bigger things to deal with. I, I, God, I wish we had more time. So let me ask just a couple of questions that I always ask any, any of our guests that join us. So which three books or experts would you recommend that our listeners or viewers buy or follow? Great question. So I mentioned one of them a few minutes ago here, Josh Braun. So he is a sales leader that's very active on LinkedIn. Um, he absolutely puts his money where his mouth is in that he sources his own business as a sales consultant or sales trainer. So he's out there trying the methods that he claims work, which I think is so important because I think a lot of books and methodologies can be outdated or they can be built by people that are kind of sitting in an ivory tower and not out there doing the job that you're doing all the time. So he's wonderful. Similarly, Beck Holland, uh, she actually, I credit to my success in, I mentioned that I kind of tried a little something different. So I didn't have to do cold calls. I did, uh, I sort of um, reverse engineered one of her tactics. And then that became the, the number one way that I booked meetings. So Beck Holland is a wonderful person to follow. I would say since those two are so tactical in the kind of outbound and sales development, I would go a little bit more um, strategic and kind of higher level. So somebody like Mark Roberge, um, reading his books uh, or seeing even just talks that he does, he's, he's pretty active in kind of the, the speaking circuit, um, but he's, he's a great person for the, the higher level sales leadership stuff. Very cool. And um, how can our viewers and listeners learn more about you and, and get in touch. Yeah, you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Sarah Jane Hicks on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect and chat. If you've got any questions about what you're doing with Outbound, whether something might work or not, or looking for any advice, please shoot me a message. Um, other than that, we do have tons of content that we're putting out on the Predictable Revenue Podcast and on our live streams and all that kind of stuff. You can find all of that on our YouTube channel if you just search Predictable Revenue in YouTube. Great. And, and as always, we will uh, put the links to the, all of that in the, in the show notes. So Sarah, again, I wish we had more time. This is such a big topic. It's such an important topic, both at an SDR level, sales level, as well as the founder and leadership level of companies. But I'm so glad that we did this. 
and uh, you shed a ton of incredibly valuable information. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Great. So this is this is Moed Amin signing off. And and you know, as I always say, if if there are any principles or aspects of what we discussed today that is interesting for you and you'd like to get in touch to learn more, do please contact me through the usual channels. I will uh, provide the links in the uh, in the show notes as well. So I hope that was useful. If any listeners and viewers would like us to either bring a guest or discuss some specific topics that you find really interesting, do leave a note in the comment section, particularly on YouTube. Leave that note there. As always, we will try and address that as quickly as possible. So until the next, uh, until the next episode, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, everyone.